Well, um, what, what we're going to do, 1 Samuel chapter 20, I'll just come right out with it. What we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks with 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, but that doesn't mean we're going to take like half this week and half next week. What it means is we're actually going to take two passes at the whole chapter. And here's the reason why we're going to take two passes at the whole chapter. On the one hand, when we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20, there's this theme that develops, which we're going to focus on today, this theme that develops regarding what Jonathan doesn't know about what's going on in relationship to David and the fact that he remains totally committed to David all through the, the, the experience of what's going on, even though he doesn't quite get stuff. In fact, the word know is repeated ten times in this passage. And if you remember from our studies, that's one of the ways we know there's an emphasis going on there in the Hebrew text. So Jonathan doesn't know something at the beginning of the passage. By verse 33, Jonathan is going to know something. But all the while, in between, as he's got these questions, he's totally committed to David. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Commitment in the context of questions. That's what's happening here. It's a big thing that's happening in this passage. And then next week what we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to talk about friendship. Because in the whole narrative of the Old Testament, this is one of those chapters that highlights covenantal committed friendship in a way that is extremely unique between Jonathan and David. And we don't want to miss, uh, miss spending time on that as well. So next week, we're going to spend our time on friendship. Uh, this week, we're going to spend our time uh, trying to sort out what this passage is, is helping us understand in relationship to committed. David is committed to God's king. But as he's committed, he's got a really big and weighing question uh, throughout, throughout that process. And so that's, that's where we'll be this week and next week. I think just those two. We'll see how we do. I think just those two. Um, but so this week, committed with questions. And we'll set the context in this way. Um, no doubt, pr probably all of us really have had the experience of being very committed to something, but at the same time, not quite understanding everything that's going on with that something. So, so uh, this comes to mind even as the school year begins. Uh, you, maybe you remember sitting in class, or maybe you have been sitting in class, where the teacher lays out the syllabus in front of you, and you're all uh, looking at what the class is going to entail. It's there on the desk, talking about protocols and assignments and, and uh, due dates and the topics you'll be covering, all those kinds of things. Uh, the teacher starts talking through all that, and at least in my own experience, what almost always happens is... Uh, two dialogues start running through my mind. And dialogue one goes something like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, like I, don't, I don't understand how I'm supposed to turn assignments in. How exactly are we supposed to be navigating these things? What do you mean by due dates? Do I really have to do that partner work? All of these things, questions start going through my mind as that syllabus sits in front of me. But then there's the other dialogue that starts running through my mind that says, you may not get it, but you can't quit. You may not get it, this is only day one, you've got to keep going in this class, you have to persevere, you can't go back on your determination to see the coursework through. And so maybe you've sat in class and had that experience, maybe, it's just, maybe it is just me, I don't know, but, but, but you have that, that definitive commitment, I'm going to work through whatever the class is that's laid before me, and at the same time, you can have that really big, ominous kind of, kind of question reality that you're facing, I'm not, I'm not sure I understand this. I'm not actually sure I can make it through all this, all this kind of work. And while that, that coexistence of, of total commitment along with some significant questions 
While those two things can exist simultaneously in, in a lot of areas of our life, in the classroom, they can exist at, at work when the supervisor gives you a new assignment and you can't quite comprehend what's going on, but obviously you have no choice but to commit to it. This kind of tension can exist in lots of areas of our life. Um, no doubt it very much can exist in, in aspects of our Christian experience. It's a tension that can be very present in our Christian life as we follow Jesus. Because on the one hand, and certainly with an awareness of our own frailty, but, but on the one hand, we engage in the Christian life absolutely committed to Jesus. That, that there is nothing that could take away our loyalty to the one who's delivered us and preserved us. We love him because he first loved us. In the Christian life, there is this, this absolute commitment to a steadfast following of Jesus through all the ups and downs and all those kinds of things, so much so that Paul can say things like, to live is Christ. Right? We're with Jesus, total commitment. But at the same time, that commitment can exist alongside some pretty big questions. It can coexist alongside some significant elements of confusion. So, so we're committed to following Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our Savior, coming King, all of those things. But the questions can exist. There can be those things that just don't seem to make sense to us in the immediacy of what it really means to follow Him. And then that, can, and that can lead to tension. It's okay for it to, to, to be uh, there and the things I'm committed to, I'm committed to these things, but at the same time, uh, we can start to feel a trouble along these lines. And so as we, as we think about those two things, there's the commitment, but there's the, the, the questions, the tension that can be present. As we think about those things, uh, we can really be helped in the way our narrative uh, runs those themes out in the chapter this morning. Because what's here, uh, while it might not answer all the, all the questions or give us the entirety of the framework we need, what's here does give us parts of what it looks like to remain loyal, to remain committed, even though uh, those, those questions can very much exist for us as we follow not King David, but as we follow the greater king uh, whom David is pointing us forward to as we follow King Jesus. So, with all that in mind... Uh, we have a lot of text to cover, but, but in this passage, we see Jonathan is very committed. The Hebrew word said that word for covenant loyalty, it's repeated multiple times in this chapter. David is very committed with great loyalty to God's chosen king. But along with that, David has questions. He's a bit confounded. He's not quite sure what's going on. And so we'll start uh, looking at verses 1 through 4. If you want to look at that first, we'll start in on that section and just uh, study it under the word question. Question. So, uh, starting in verse 1, we see that in terms of the, uh, the narrator and what he's bringing us through so far, we really we don't miss a beat between uh, the beginning of chapter 20 and verse 1 and where we left off at the end of chapter 19. Because by the end of chapter 19, which we looked at last week, David had been on the run from Saul who had grown in his very overt determination to kill David. And through a variety of circumstances, from putting assassins outside David's house to, uh, to, to, uh, to some of these things, David had actually ended up in Naoth, which is a community of prophets. And Saul finds this out. He sends different groups of men there desiring to find David and kill him. But instead of killing David, uh, Saul actually ends up having to go himself. But in the context of even going himself, Saul is put to shame as the Spirit of God intervenes in a miraculous way. And, and Saul's plans are completely thwarted. David is preserved. That's all happened there at the end of chapter 19. 
But David, he's well aware that Saul continues to want him dead. So as chapter 20 opens, we find that David doesn't stick around to find out how long Saul's going to be kept at bay, uh, but instead David flees that prophetic community where he's been at Naoth. As verse 1 tells us, he flees there, and David goes to Jonathan. He goes to Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, we remember, is Saul's son, but Jonathan is also David's close friend. In fact, Jonathan made that that covenant of friendship with David back in chapter 18. And unlike Saul, who refuses to give up his royal dynasty, even though the Lord has rejected him as king, unlike Saul, Jonathan, who by all human measures is the one in line for for the throne next after Saul, he's the king's son, uh, but unlike Saul, Jonathan has completely yielded to God's choice of king Uh, in King David. In fact, in chapter 18, David, he actually gave David his own royal armor in in a symbolic gesture of the fact he's yielding to David as John's, uh, as God's chosen king. So, so, so with, with all that going on, we know Jonathan's posture toward David is one of loyalty. He recognizes who the Lord is calling David to be, the exact opposite of his dad, Saul. And, and, and with all that's going on, uh, Saul is, is continuing to seek David's life. And so David seeks out his friend which we'll talk about at length next week. Uh, but, but, but in the beginning of our chapter here, in verse 1, we have David asking Jonathan his own question. Basically, he's saying, what, what in the world is going on? Like, why is your dad so intent on killing me? Did, did, I, did I wrong him, David wonders? Did I sin against him? Why does he want to take my life? And, and there's a sense in which things would have genuinely seemed this foggy to David. For us, because we're in on what the omniscient narrator has shared about Saul's posture of heart, we we know what's going on as the reader. We know what Saul's problem is. We know why he wants David dead. He wants David dead because out of jealousy, he wants to stay, stay the king. He's jealous over David's successes in battle. He's jealous over the people's celebration of David's successes in battle. Saul is a jealous man boiling over with hatred toward David because Saul hates the idea of giving up the primacy of place he occupies as king. He wants to be in charge and have that position. But David doesn't necessarily know all that. David's just having to piece this stuff together as he goes. But, but because all David knows for sure is that, is that not that long ago, he's playing music in Saul's presence, seeking to be a relief to Saul. He's going there to be nice to him as he's tormented by that evil spirit. And then if Saul's not playing music for Saul, what, what, what's David, David, if he's not doing that, he's out fighting Saul's battles. Saul the king should be fighting the Philistines, but he sits at home while David is out winning all these victories. You know, so you've got David there in one moment serving Saul, in a sense, very sacrificially. And the next moment, out of the blue, Saul's throwing spears at David trying to kill him. And not just that, but now uh, Saul's even sent assassins after David multiple times. So we can see where David gets to the question, what in the world is going on? This isn't just Saul, the the king with a foul temper. This is like a Saul and me thing. He wants me very specifically dead. Why in the world does Saul want me dead? He asked Jonathan. And Jonathan apparently is really surprised by this question. It it doesn't make sense to him. So so David asked that in verse 1, why does your dad want me dead? Verse 2, Jonathan says to David, and this is very emphatic in the Hebrew text, We'll try to kind of make it happen here, but but Jonathan says, no, never, you won't die. Very emphatic. Listen, Jonathan says, my father doesn't do anything great or small without, and literally the Hebrew reads, without uncovering my ear with it. In other words, he tells me everything. So why would he hide this matter from me? 
Why, why wouldn't I know about this? Is Jonathan's question. There's no way my dad is out to kill you. That can't be true. Which is the reader, we hear this and we're thinking, my goodness, you, you know, why are you so dense, Jonathan? We know Saul wants to kill David. But again, we have to remember where these, where these individuals are in the process because we've had the benefit of the narrator giving us insight into Saul's posture of heart. As far as Jonathan's knowledge goes, it ended not quite, through, not quite halfway through chapter 19 where, where he, he reasoned with Saul after he found out that Saul wanted to kill David. Jonathan has this intervention session with Saul and he, he speaks to him about David's victories, and he even says to Saul, you were even glad about this. And then by the end of all that, Saul actually makes an oath before the Lord there with Jonathan not to kill David. So Saul's made this oath, which, which again, without knowing the full evil position of Saul's heart, obviously that would have been a big deal to Jonathan. That's, that's no small thing in Israel to make an oath before Yahweh that he's not going to do something. That would have sounded positive, right? So, so, so that's the last piece of information Jonathan had to work with. And maybe he's a little bit naive in all this, but, but Jonathan's genuinely surprised, and he just can't believe this. My, my dad wouldn't do anything without telling me, how in the world can this be? How can this be? And then, and then here's where, where tensions begin to be developed in terms of just the, the grammar and things in the text. Um, and, and we see this by that repeated use of the word to know that's going to be uh, running all the way through the rest of this chapter. But David responds to Jonathan in verse 3, and he says, your father certainly knows. So he's going to explain something. In Hebrew, it actually reads, your father knows, knows. Remember how in Hebrew, they'll, they'll repeat a word like we might use the word very or something like that. Hebrew will repeat a word for emphasis. David saying, your father knows, knows that I found favor with you. And basically, he says he wouldn't want you to know what's going on because he wouldn't want to hurt your feelings, which is a lot of benefit of the doubt that David's giving to Saul there. But again, this is, this is where these guys, these guys are at. So, so your dad wouldn't tell you because your dad knows you and I are friends. He, he, knows, he knows about our relationship. And, and then here's, here's where things really are, David says in verse 3. It's not like you think, Jonathan, there's actually just a step between me and death because of your dad. Which is, which is quite a statement. Literally, you can imagine David thinking about the spears flying at him. There's a step between Jonathan and death, or between David and death these days. And, and David even drives the serious reality of this home with this oath before the Lord, so Jonathan will feel the weightiness of this in verse 3. So as surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, David says, there's just a step between me and death. David knows Jonathan's not convinced of what's happening, and he needs Jonathan to be convinced. Your dad is out to get me. So, so Jonathan's questioning this. He's confused. David's trying to make his case. And then you notice what Jonathan says to David in verse 4. Actually, you can notice what he doesn't say to David in verse 4. Jonathan doesn't respond to all this and say to David, okay, I understand now you're, you're right. My dad is out to kill you. I get it. He doesn't say that. We, we were not going to be told that Jonathan knows his dad wants to kill David until all the way down in verse 33, after his own spear incident. Right? Jonathan still has the question. But notice what he says to David in verse 4. He says, whatever you say, I will do. So Jonathan is living with this really big question mark in his mind about what's going on. It's no small situation. This is a question involving his dad, his best friend, and a murder plot. I mean, just put yourself in Jonathan's shoes for a moment. He's living with this right now. But with that, he is still expressing complete and total commitment and loyalty to David, God's anointed king. 
And, and we could just take that and be encouraged by it. Obviously, obviously, we're not finding ourselves in a situation of facing um, royal dynastic controversies in our lives of faith. Obviously, that's not, that's not our lives. But we are in situations of following God's climactic king. We're following King Jesus. We're committed to Jesus. And in our commitment to Jesus, we can face seasons of significant questions. Like Jonathan here, we can face situations even of very disturbing questions. And in the midst of our commitment to Jesus, these questions can come. Maybe the questions are of a more theological nature. You know, the way God works and, and, and the way He does things, it kind of confounds me. And I'm, and I'm absolutely committed to following Jesus, but I'm, I'm confused about some apparently quite important things about what it means to know and understand God and what He's revealed. There's truths that don't seem to align in the context of my commitment to Jesus. I, I, I'm just not really understanding. So those theological questions can arise in our lives of commitment to Jesus. Or even in a more personal or experiential nature, we, we can find ourselves thinking something like, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely committed to King Jesus, but, but I have questions about some of the things I'm personally facing, the things I'm dealing with. I have questions about the kinds of ways He calls me to obey in the Scriptures. I'm absolutely committed to Him, but, but I'm also confused about circumstances I face. I'm confused about why certain things are the way they are, why maybe relief hasn't come in my life, or why certain things have happened or continue to happen. But, but a passage like this, the, the way the narrative comes to us, it can be a, an extraordinary con- encouragement. And it can be an encouragement because it shows us that in following God's king, you know, as David gives us a picture of God's king, which ultimately points us to Jesus, And following God's king, questions and confusion can absolutely coexist with ongoing and absolute commitment. Jonathan's not saying, I have questions, David, so I'm going to put my commitment to you on hold for a few moments while I sort these kinds of things out. I'm not sure I can stick with you right now. I've got to get everything sorted first. No, Jonathan says, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to me, David. But verse 4, whatever you say, I'll do. Whatever you say, I'll do. Commitment in the context of significant questions. It's possible to feel that questions disqualify us in our following of the king. Or, or we might find ourselves thinking that, that all the questions need to be answered before we you know, authentically follow Jesus. But a text like this gives us a different picture. To total commitment and, and at the same time a genuine lack of knowledge in, in, in what's going on. These kinds of things can go together in the context of our Christian life as we work out what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus. A text like this shows us that actually it's, it's not so out of place when it comes to following God's anointed king with some confusion still lingering in our minds. So Jonathan's got questions, but his commitment remains. We see that first of all. And then, as we move on to the next section, into verses 5 through 9, we can think about those verses under the word appeal. So first we had question, now we have appeal. Um, so as, as this interaction goes on between David and Jonathan, um, and David, by the way, we'll read this later in 2 Samuel 14. Twice it says there that he has wisdom like an angel of God. David, David's a wise, a wise man. And, and he's accurately figured out what's going on. And he's so, he has so figured out what's going on, he actually shares a plan with Jonathan that will help make things more clear. So David's been thinking on this. He's formulated a, a plan. So, so in verses 5 to 7, first of all, David lays out this plan for Jonathan to go to a new moon celebration. 
which is one of the Jewish festivals. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 10 and other places. Uh, but there's going to be this dinner celebration. They la it lasts for three days. And, and even though David would be expected to be there as still a, a member of Saul's court, he hasn't gotten fired yet, even though it's obviously lots of trouble, David would be expected to be there uh, because of his place. He's not going to come. He, he's going to actually hide, hide out in the countryside. And so David says, when you're at the table with Saul, tell him, I, w I went back home to offer sacrifices there with my family. And if Saul's okay with that, we'll know I'm safe. But if Saul gets angry... I will know he intends to kill me. You'll know he has evil intentions. So David lays out this plan. And then it's interesting uh, that David makes this appeal in that context for Jonathan's continued loyalty. So he's just asked Jonathan to go do something that's quite frankly kind of dangerous even for Jonathan. And right after that, he calls for, for this affirmation of continued loyalty, even, even in kind of an extreme way. So, so David references um, the covenant there of friendship that Jonathan initiated back in chapter 18. And he asked Jonathan to deal kindly with him. He says, if I've done wrong, kill me yourself. Better you than my father. So in a sense, it's David's claim of innocence as he's calling Jonathan to, uh, to be engaged with him, to trust him. Uh, it's fairly dramatic. Uh, but David is applying the pressure to Jonathan to, to continue to act out of deep loyalty, deep loyalty to him in this context of pressure that they're facing. In fact, in verse 8, where we have it translated, deal kindly with your servant, uh, that's actually one of the places in this chapter where the word hesed is used, uh, that Hebrew word for acting with loyal and committed love. So, so David is appealing for Jonathan to act in a loyal and committed uh, love toward him while Jonathan is still in this state of confusion. And Jonathan... Um, he, he almost sounds like he's being patronized. In verse 9, he says, if I ever knew, and, and in this, we actually have the word to know repeated twice again, so Jonathan's emphasizing it now himself. Jonathan says, if I ever knew, knew that my father had evil intentions towards you, wouldn't I tell you? So he's getting that David is asking him for loyalty. Jonathan's saying to David, I, I am totally committed to you, but I really haven't heard anything about this. Jonathan's still saying he, he doesn't know as David is appealing to him in this way. And in thinking on this, it's, it's worthwhile to, to note that, that in the midst of Jonathan's statement about being absolutely committed back in verse 4, so he's just said, I'm going to do whatever you want, David, I am committed to you. It's noteworthy that even still, and in even a rather dramatic way, David appeals again to Jonathan for covenant loyalty. So, so what David does is appeal again, extraordinary commitment to David, Basically, the next thing David does is appeal again for that commitment to continue, which, which might seem kind of strange at first. Why would you push so hard on Jonathan's commitment if, if he's already said, David, whatever you do, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it. David, uh, Jonathan said that. It seems weird, except that what's going on here is underpinning the importance, really, of, of the continued appeals for commitment, especially when the pressure is on. Jonathan's got questions. David knows that Jonathan has questions. And instead of just presuming upon Jonathan's commitment, David actually takes the opportunity to remind him and recall Jonathan to the commitment of loyal love that they have together. He brings up the loyal steadfastness that they've, that they've pledged to one another. 
And as we reflect on that in our own in our own Christian experience, we see the place for these renewed calls to faithfulness, especially in a context where the pressure is building, especially when some important questions about following Jesus have have started to rise in our minds. We know it's not enough. We know this about the Christian life. It's not enough to, to, in a sense, once hear Jesus say, come, follow me, be loyal to me. And we say, yes, Lord, I am committed to you. I'll be loyal to you. It's not enough to hear that once and be done. In reality, and especially as we face pressures, we need that call, that appeal to be faithful time and time and time and time again. We need the continual call to remember our faithful loyalty to the King. Because as Jonathan's soon going to discover, that there are calls to loyalty that counter loyalty to the king, which can come on very strong and even very dangerously. Those counter calls are there. And David, even though he knows Jonathan, in a sense, is this sturdy here. He, he's the one who went to him in the first place. Jonathan's professed his commitment. Even still, David takes the time to bring up their commitment before the Lord again. So much so, again, in verse 9, Jonathan almost seems annoyed, like David's patronizing him. Jonathan basically said, I, I, I'd tell you, if, if I knew this was going on, just back off a little bit. I'm totally committed to you. Jonathan feels a, little bit, a bit patronized by this. But, but it's this renewed appeal amid, amid the pressure of questions that's something we need to be attentive to and receptive to and even anticipating in our lives of faith. Because even as we think out our own uh, experience and as we think about our time with, with other Christian believers, as, as we've seen over time, Christians, certain Christians maybe drift away from faithfully walking with Christ. That doesn't happen while they're sitting under the regular preaching of the word. That doesn't happen while they're regularly engaged in scripture reading and engaging with other believers who are compelling them along and those kinds of things. People don't drift away from the faith and the commitment they have to Christ when the regular appeals for trusting and following Jesus are coming. That's not when the drifting begins. People drift from faithfulness. People drift from commitment to Christ when they start distancing themselves from the constant reminders of grace in the gospel appeals. The the, the time for continued appeals, as David sees it here, the time for continued appeals to commitment is right in the midst of Jonathan's professed commitment. He's not waiting for Jonathan to start easing up a little bit in in his loyalty. It's a matter of right now. David brings this up again. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for us, not least of all through the preaching of the Word. Paul speaks about the preaching of, of, of Christ from the Scriptures, bringing about the obedience of faith in Romans 16. In other words, if we were to separate the preaching of the Word from our life as a Christian believer, our obedience of faith would falter dramatically, not because the preacher is so good or, or anything like that, but because it's through the preaching that God has determined to make His continued appeals for faithfulness through the people who are being faithful. And that's what keeps us going, right? Paul talks about that with Timothy, doesn't he, where he says teaching the Bible properly is important because in so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. When Peter writes, to, to, his, to his audience, Peter says, I write to stir you up by way of a reminder. The calls, they come again and again and again from out of the Scriptures to be faithful to the Lord's King. And not least of all, right in the middle of difficulties that we might be facing. And, and even how like Jonathan here gets a little bit exasperated in verse 9 with the appeal. Sounds kind of frustrated. You know, come on, David, I, I'm, I, already just, I just said I'm committed to you. If I knew something more, I would have told you. 
even though we can almost get exasperated with the renewed appeals to remain faithful to Jesus, a text like this reminds us that, that even uh, whether it's the normalcy of life or under pressure especially, we need the renewed appeals. We need these things. We need the call again and again and again from Christ. Even right after we've renewed our affirmations of trust in Christ, we need that renewed call. Jesus comes and says, stay committed to me. Keep following me. Keep pressing on. Don't give up in your faithful, steady commitment to the king. Jonathan needed that. We need that. Um, you, you, and you know this, but, but it's just worth saying out loud again. The mark of maturity in the Christian life is not thinking we've moved past the need for basic gospel appeals to persevere in faithfulness. No, a mark of maturity in the Christian life is actually to long for and find sweetness in those renewed appeals again and again because the longer we're in the Christian life, the more we realize how vitally we need them. We need those things because it has its intended effect in our lives. It keeps us close in our commitment to Christ, those appeals do, even when the questions are coming. And, and it's this kind of this kind of closeness that we actually see play out next as the passage goes on. So if you look at, if you look at um, verses 10 to 17 next, even while Jonathan still has this question, that hasn't been relieved. Um, he doesn't know what's going on with his dad yet. But in verses 10 to 17, he reaffirms his absolute commitment to David. So here we are back with Jonathan committing again. It's back and forth thing all the way through. We had a question, then appeal, now an affirmation. So, so if you look at verses 10 and 11, Jonathan and David, they begin talking about how they'll communicate the outcome of this new moon festival plan. How's this going to work out? Because it's dangerous for us to be together. So, so if, if Saul's okay or whether he's angry, we need a way to sort this out uh, as David hides out in that field. So they start to work this plan out. But really before they can get into working the plan out all the way, Jonathan has this very long statement in verses 12 to 17 affirming again his commitment to David. So so. so we have here this, this, this talk about the Lord being with David as, as the Lord was with his father. Jonathan says that in verse 13. In other words, Jonathan's confessing, you know, you're, you're king, not my dad anymore. The Lord be with you. There's all these statements in here. Uh, he affirms David's kingship. He actually asks David not to withdraw his kindness from him if he dies. We could spend a lot of time here. Maybe we will next week. But obviously when a new king comes into power, what happens to the old king and, and, and the old king's family? Well, they're enemies to the throne. They're the first to go. Jonathan is saying to God's anointed king, will you remember me? And even though I'm your enemy, I, I should be your enemy, would you still consider us friends? I mean, what a gospel picture is being, is being placed there. Um, David, Jonathan even calls punishment down on himself from the Lord if he fails to be faithful to Jesus. So it's this huge reaffirmation of Jonathan's commitment, his desire for David's kindness extended to him. And so much so that in this, Jonathan actually makes another covenant with David. And not just with David, but with David's house. So it's a generational thing. It's a family thing now uh, that, that Jonathan is, is committing to. Uh, his family, uh, he desires the, protect, the protection of David's royal family line. Um, and then again, Jonathan swears his love for David in verse 17. So there's all this affirmation of commitment going on with things still not clear for Jonathan. He doesn't really know what's going on with his dad. He won't know till verse 33 but as the pressure of the situation mounts, you see this equal mounting of commitment growing in Jonathan's life. David's appealing, Jonathan's committing more and more and more and more, even though the situation continues to be very tense. Um, and so, so we find ourselves camping out on this theme here, but, but, but it's worth asking if, if you feel like 
you, you have to have everything sorted out and understood and nailed down before you commit to God's king. You know, it can very much feel that way as, as, we, as we consider Christ. But, but here's Jonathan as the pressure's building. In fact, sometimes I, I don't know how far to go on some of these things, but this is interesting, so I'll tell you. Maybe it's just interesting to me. But, but the Hebrew in this section of verses where Jonathan is talking, it's really messy Hebrew. So, so just like regular sentence structure, stems of verbs, they don't ma- things don't match. It's, it's a real mess in Hebrew. And scholars point, where Jonathan's talking, and scholars point out that it's a Hebrew literary device that actually shows up multiple times in the book of Samuel to indicate situations of extremely high stress. It's a literary device in the Hebrew language. So the messiness of the Hebrew writing here is a way of communicating the stress of the situation because things are messy and stressful for Jonathan. We can only imagine, right? But in the midst of the mess and the stress, he's saying to David, I know you're God's king. I'm committed to God's king. I love God's king. No matter what happens, show kindness to me and my family as God's king. It's an amazing posture of heart, and it's a posture of heart that is, that is coming from a place that is not at rest, that's not secure, that's not uh, just able to think things through with clarity and having all the ducks in a row. No, it's a place that Jonathan's coming from a place really of total personality personal chaos. He's obviously in this, in this horrible situation of wondering about his dad and his best friend in murder, and the whole situation is just chaotic. Now he's going to have to go be in his dad's presence without David. He's stressed out of his mind, and in the midst of all that stress, he's saying, you're my king. Please be kind to me. And there's a place for that in the Christian life. We don't have to say, I'm all cleaned up. Be kind to me. Say, I'm all stressed out. I'm all messed up. I don't even know which way's up at the moment. Be kind to me. I love you, Jesus. And there's a huge word for us in that. So there's this affirmation on the part of Jonathan. And then we keep going, verses 18 to 34, we have clarity, clarity. Uh, Jonathan's had this question, you know, he didn't know if Saul was really out to get David for good, uh, but, but now clarity comes, because what Jonathan didn't know, he's now going to know for sure. So if, if you just keep an eye on the text, 18 to 34, David is hiding to communicate, and is, is set up for firing arrows out into a field where David is hiding, to communicate what Saul's response during this whole festival scheme is going to be. The plan is set, uh, actually from verses 18 up to 24, and then Jonathan goes to the new moon celebration in verses 25 to 34, which is a a three-day festival. And David isn't there for for day one, obviously. And and on that day, Saul doesn't say anything. We're led into Saul's thinking again, as the narrator is prone to do for us. And Saul's thinking, well, you know, maybe David's not here because he's unclean. It's just funny that Saul in his just twisted mindset, doesn't think, maybe he's not here because I kept chucking spears at him. But he doesn't. He thinks maybe Jonathan's not here because he's ceremonially unclean. But you know, for a festival, you if, if you touch a dead body, for example, David was a warrior fighting Philistines all the time, you would have to purify yourself before you came and participated in, in, in one of these things under Levitical law. So, so that's where Saul's mind goes. He's just an illogical man, right? Uh, but, but he tends to get around the fact David's not there on day one that way. On the second day, though, uh, Saul actually asks Jonathan about what's going on. And, and Jonathan gives the story that they'd, that they'd made up together, that David went to offer sacrifices with his family. And in verse 30, Saul, Saul absolutely explodes. Uh, he, he explodes again so, so erratically, so irrationally. Just, just hear the irrationality in, in this opposition to the king that's present. So he starts in verse 30 by, by insulting Jonathan by saying something, about John, something nasty about Jonathan's mother. And it really is nasty. Then Saul says, and here's the word again, he says, I know, 
you're siding with Jesse's son. So so he won't even call him by name. Saul knows Jonathan is on David's side. And then in an incoherent twist, Saul further tries to hurt Jonathan by saying that he's ashamed to his mother. So first, Saul insults Jonathan's mother. He's the one being shameful towards Jonathan's mother. And then he comes back around by saying that Jonathan is the one who's shameful to his mother. So, So Saul, he's just in this incoherent, unhinged, who knows what's going on? He's not making any sense. And then, and then he even strangely appeals to pride and power and, and longevity to try to entice D- Jonathan to go against David because he tells him, I want David dead. So, so he has this guilt and shame thing going on, talking to Jonathan about his mom. Now there's this enticement to power where he says in verse 31, every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingship are not secure. In other words, it's like he's coming along and saying, no, I'm, sorry if, uh, just, I'm sorry for the temper tantrum for just a moment. What I really am concerned about, Jonathan, is you. And that you'll be able to continue our legacy of royalty in, in, in Israel. And, and every day that David's out there that he's not dead, you know, there's a threat to that. I'm really just concerned for you. You're not secure as long as David's alive. But of course, that's totally fake a concern. He's not, Saul doesn't really care about Jonathan. He's only concerned about himself because when Jonathan tries to appeal on David's behalf, don't don't kill David, Jonathan tries to appeal and Saul, the one who's so concerned that Jonathan would have uh, an ongoing dynasty, uh, what does Saul decide to do? Well, he decides to throw a spear at him. There's fatherly love for you, right? So he chucks his spear at him. He misses because Saul's the worst spear thrower in the history of spear throwers in the world. But, but, But in that moment, as the spear goes through the air, we're told in verse 33, what? Jonathan knew that his dad was determined to kill David. Might have taken him a while to get there, but now there's no doubt about it. He knows that Saul is out to kill David. The clarity comes. And, and that must have been a dark day, day for Jonathan, his, his dad being so clearly against David, his, his dad consumed really with his mad, incoherent, murderous rage. And Jonathan's angry, the text says in verse 34, but, but not for reasons we might think. You would think he would be really angry. His dad just said bad things about his mom and threw a spear at him. That would make the average person angry. That's not why Jonathan is angry. And it's a strong anger that's reflected there in the language that you, that's used. Jonathan is angry because of Saul's shameful behavior toward the true King David. Saul's priority is himself. Jonathan's priority is the one God said would be on the throne. Jonathan's angry for David's sake. No doubt Jonathan understands what's going on now. His dad is against God's king, and, he, and he's, he's fired up and, ve- and very angry about that. And, and again, this moment of clarity for Jonathan is instructional for us if, if, we, if we just through, think through this, this clarity a little bit that comes. Because clarity comes for Jonathan, but, but we have to think about the way in which it comes for him, the way in which we even desire clarity to come for us in our lives. Clarity comes for Jonathan as he navigates very dangerous conditions, absolutely committed to the king. So, so in this narrative, Jonathan stands firm, even though he's very much guilted by his dad, he's still standing firm in that. In this narrative, Jonathan stands firm, even though he's enticed with power by his dad. It's just interesting, the variables of temptation that are being presented to Jonathan. And in this narrative, Jonathan stands firm, even though he's physically threatened by his dad. There's an attempt to assault that's going on here. Which is quite a triad of extreme difficulty and temptation if you think about it. Guilt and shame on the one hand, temptation to pride on the other, and I'm going to try to kill you all in the same moment. David's going through all of those, all of those pressures right now, and it's on the other side of his perseveringly holding fast to his commitment to David in all of that 
that the clarity comes. At the very end of all of that, it's no accident the text frames it that way. When does David know? Or when does Jonathan know? Well, after all that has taken place, then Jonathan knows. Then he knows. The question is answered. And we can find ourselves pressed with questions about following Jesus and what's going on in our lives because of our commitment to Jesus. We can face those questions, but those questions rarely exist in isolation. Those questions come, and with them, other voices start speaking. You know, voices that, that, that make us feel guilty and shameful. Uh, say things like, you're a disgrace if you stick with this whole God thing. It is embarrassing for you. You're embarrassing our family. The shame and guilt uh, can come along with the, the seasons of questioning. And so it can appeals to pride. You know, you, you really are following Jesus. So to be with Jesus, that's going to get you nowhere. Don't, don't you want to run your life like you want to run your life? Right? Don't you want to realize your potential on your own terms? You don't want to commit to this Jesus person. That'll just twist you up and squeeze the life right out of you. But you notice what goes on here with Saul. He may be saying life, even royal life. Don't you want to be the king? Saul may be saying life, but in the end, Saul's intentions are absolute death. And it's on the other side of persevering through those pressures that clarity comes. We, we see the folly of the ways of the, of the Saul-type kingdom of man, if you like, here. We see its death. We see its destructive patterns and desires. And then on the other side of that, clarity comes. Clarity comes to Jonathan. And maybe that's just an important word for you this morning. Because the questions can be there. And maybe you feel uh, like the, the commitment to Jesus, it's, it's wavering these days because of those questions or because of the pressures or the, or, or the voices around you. But, but we're, we're called from a passage like this to press on because it is the, on the other side of those pressures and those, and, those, and those temptations, ultimately, that we do find a sense of renewed understanding, a sense of, of clarity can come as we walk through uh, those darker seasons, that's when clarity will come on the other side. And so like Jonathan, we, we press on. Clarity comes. Which brings us to the final verses, 35 to 42. Um, and there's much we can say about these. We'll say some more next week, but we'll think about them for now under the term peace. Peace. At first pass, the last verses don't seem so peaceful. They just seem sad. Um, there, there's, there's sorrow here to be sure, which again, we'll talk more about it uh, next week. But, but Jonathan goes to the field. They run their little arranged program, he and David with the arrows, and the, and the servant goes and gets him. And when all that's done, they realize the coast is clear enough, I guess, for them to actually meet and speak. Um, and, and they know that because of the danger with Saul, they're not going to be able to be together now as, as, as their friendship's going to have to be separated. They, they can't be seen. Saul's out to get David. Uh, the friendship is not something that will be enjoyed in proximity. Uh, but as they part, Jonathan says to David, he says, the CSB reads, he says, go in the assurance of, of, of the two of us have pledged in the name of the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew, the word for peace is there. Go in the shalom. Go in the, the peace, the shalom. The two of us pledged in the name of the Lord. Which is a very interesting way to part. Um, seeing that Jonathan and David part in the peace of the Lord. Because in the end, well, the question was answered about Saul's malicious intent, and the answer was a dark answer. Um, in the end, Jonathan and David's posture remain steadfast and trusting in the Lord who would preserve them. Um, in fact, Yahweh's name is mentioned 13 times in this chapter. 
for all the immediacy of the pressure Jonathan and David are facing, the unity that they are committed to ultimately shares rest and their commitment to faithfulness before God. And they are genuinely resting in that. They're able to speak in, in a context of, 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 of torment and, and, and all kinds of different things going on. They're able to speak about this peace that exists between them because together they're trusting in Yahweh's preserving hand which was indicated even earlier, their, their posture of heart along these lines. Because when they were talking about their plan, Jonathan actually said to David back in verse 32, if things go badly, it's ultimately the Lord sending you away. They're not operating thinking this is the realm of chance. Right? In the context of all this tension and with answers that come back darker than anyone would have hoped, they still recognize God's purposeful hand as David faces the danger he does and as they express sorrow over the separation of their friendship. And while we don't know all the purposes of God all the times in our situations, we can know in David's situation, we know that God did bring him through these things for a unique purpose. For all that David experienced, not only do we have the wealth of the Psalms that David wrote during this time, with help, which help us in our own dark days, but ultimately David's journey is prefigured what would happen with Jesus himself. In this way, David is preparing us to recognize Jesus when he comes because, because as Jesus came, before Jesus would ascend the throne as king, just like before David will ascend the throne as king, before Jesus would ascend the throne as king, he'd be opposed by leadership, hunted down for death, and all of those things before resurrecting to rise to the eternal throne of heaven. So there's huge purpose for this in David. There's no purpose in that car alarm, but there's purpose for this in David. And, then there, and, and we need to understand that there's purpose for us as well, um, especially when we find ourselves trusting in the Lord in the midst of deep opposition, especially when the questions come, we can still know peace. Well, why can we know peace? Because, because the Lord who's with us is the same Lord who's with David. And as he had purposes in David's life, he has purposes in our lives. And so we can be people who know a kind of peace that transcends the reality of uniquely pressure-filled, damaging, and dark circumstances. And that's something that we want to take with us as we go, because in the end, the peace exists. Even Jonathan alludes to this so many times. Peace exists because Jonathan knows God's king wins. And, and as Jonathan's uh, one remaining family member will find out one day when, jo when David's faithful to his promises with, with Jonathan's one remaining son, Mephibosheth. John, David will preserve him. As, as Jonathan finds out, or Jonathan's son will find out, it's not just that God's king wins, but the one who's with God's king wins as well. Uh, because he's a faithful one. And the promises made are the promises kept. So that's a good place to stop given the given the soundtrack we have now. But, uh, but, but we'll keep these things in mind. We'll return to the passage next week. We have these questions, don't we? We have questions that, uh, that, that come as we follow Jesus. They may, they may only be answered through seasons of very, very big difficulty. They may not be answered in this life at all. Uh, but whether we're, we're rejoicing or weeping or wondering, we do know that there, there's this peace remain, that, that remains. Uh, because after all, as this passage witnesses to, in all of these things, the Lord is at hand. He's with them. He's with us. And through Christ, we can be sure that these things will all end in our ultimate uh, glory. And so we're thankful for the word which reminds us of these things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for your truth, and we pray we'd be renewed by it this morning. We pray you would uh, help us remember that your presence is always with us, to guide us, to direct us, to preserve us. While we don't always understand the purposes or the path, we do understand that you are the Lord who is ever active and who reigns supreme and we can always trust you 
We pray that we would be renewed in that trust and commitment this morning uh, to the Lord Jesus, who is our King. Uh, come what may, we ask that in His name. Amen.